Ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. Welcome to the Vegas Gang podcast for December 26, 2011. The Vegas Gang is a roundtable discussion show for issues related to casinos in Las Vegas, Macau, and the rest of the world. Um, you know, for a long time in the show, I used to say that this is the smartest podcast on the entire internet. I think we have to re-earn that distinction, um, but yeah. we're going to work on that, um, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. But let me first go around the table and introduce my co-hosts. Uh, Chuck Monster is the editor-in-chief at VegasShipping.com. Hey, Chuck. How are you? I'm quite well. I'll have to uh, apologize in advance. I'm getting over the flu, so I still got a little bit of a cough here. So in case I start hacking, sorry. <laughs> we, we wish you well. We wish Thanks. you well. Uh, Dr. Dave Schwartz is the director of UNLV's Center for Gaming Research. Hey, Dave. Hi there. How are you? I'm doing okay. Good. Um, my name's Hunter Hilligus, and I'm at RateVegas.com. And I, you know, I would be surprised if at this point there are any listeners of the show that aren't already familiar, but let, uh, you know, bears repeating anyway, um, our good friend, Jeff Simpson, who was uh, the co-host of the show for every, pretty much every episode we ever had, um, he passed away on December 3rd following some complications from heart surgery. Uh, you know, Jeff was such a huge part of the show and we, we really miss him and, Sort of following on from that and trying to figure out, you know, how what do we do? How do we move forward? Do we move forward? What does the new world look like? You know, it's been those have been some questions we've had to sort of answer and consider. And I don't know if all of those answers have um, presented themselves yet, but we're sort of trying to to muddle through them. Um, I think I think I could safely say that Jeff would not have wanted us to, um, you know, throw, throw up our hands in despair over this. I mean, I, I don't, at least that's not the impression that I would get. He was, he was, you know, very selfless. He was, uh, he was, um, he was incredibly smart, but very good at, um, being humble. And I think as sort of an extension of that, uh, despite how, big of a part of the show he was and anybody that's listened to any of our previous episodes, you definitely know this. I mean, on pretty much every, every, uh, issue he was there ready to jump in with all the details and, uh, and a well-formed opinion, despite how, um, how important part of the show he was and is, uh, I don't, I, I can't imagine he would want it to stop without him. And, you know, as long as we're doing this show, there will be, uh, you know, an empty seat with his with his name on it. Um, I know that there's no way that we could replace him even if we wanted to. And so while we may while it, – well, <clears throat> while it's sort of unclear exactly how the, the future shows will be and what – how they'll uh, come together and what they'll look like and all that kind of good stuff um, – I, you know, I I just really enjoy doing this, and um, I'm hoping that uh, we'll find a way to to continue on one way or another. Um, so, I you know, I, I could talk about Jeff for a long time. And what we're going to do today uh, here at the start is we've got a couple of interesting clips and maybe a few anecdotes about about Jeff and 
share those. There's he, you know, he was a quotable. He's got a ton of ton of great stuff in the archives, especially if if you're a newer listener to the show. Um, you know, I would recommend going back to read some of that stuff. He, uh, you know, so I, when you, when we're, when you show like this, when you talk about the news, sometimes the older episodes don't get a lot of attention, but there's some real gems in there as I've, uh, as I've definitely heard as I've been listening back, um, over some of these past shows. So, you know, if, if you love the topic, um, as much as we all do go back and listen to some of that stuff because there's some really great episodes, some really fun conversations in there. So I would definitely, definitely recommend that. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, like I said, I could kind of ramble on and, uh, if, if either one of you guys has anything to interject that, that you feel free. Um, but if not, I, I would say, you know, let's, you can play some of these, some of these clips and talk about them a little bit. And then, um, there's, there's a couple of, of news stories that, that I'd like to talk about sort of in our, in our normal format. So we can just uh, we can just jump right in. Let's jump right in, buddy. All right. So this first clip, Chuck, is actually one you provided. It was um, from a show – when was that? 2009? February 2009. Yeah. Um, well, why don't, why don't you tell us? What, give, you know, what, we'll set it up a little bit and then I'll play the clip. Uh, this was uh, during the middle of the reign of Columbia, Sussex, their short <laughs> reign as owners of the Tropicana. Uh, they had bought the place uh, in a crazy bidding war against Pinnacle Entertainment. They bought it from Aztar. I don't remember exactly what the price was. Jeff, can you help me out here? <laughs> uh, it was what it was like. It was cl- close to two billion, right? It was maybe around mm-hmm. two billion dollars they paid for the. The Trop, the Tropicana Entertainment Company, and uh, yeah, they uh, they had problems with uh, finding uh, E. coli in their well water, and then there was bed bugs, and then there was the uh, the thing that Jeff uh, so famously was called out for, you know, that they weren't paying their employees. It's, all everything was going basically going to pot over at the Tropicana, and at at some point there, <laughs> they rolled out this idea, this new marketing plan that they were going to rebrand the Tropicana as a value property, and you know, saying, "Hey, we got a great value here." When the place is a dump, you know, it's completely falling apart. The employees they hate you, and they hate themselves even more. <laughs> uh, and, and, and Jeff, <laughs> you know, he <laughs> recently tickled by uh, by all the nonsense that uh, Columbia Sussex had put in the paper about him, calling him an oxymoron. <laughs> uh, he uh, his he laid in his own ideas about what the Tropicana's branding scheme should be. And this was, uh, in, in the history of, of the show at this, this very moment was, was probably when I really fell in love with Jeff. He, I thought it was infinitely funny what he said and right on. And it was really left field kind of for, for a guy who was up to that point, really all business on the show. This is the first time he really pulled his pants down and showed his sense of humor, which I it just, I fell in love with. So we can roll the videotape anytime you're ready. Yeah. All right. Here we go. So here's a clip from the show, uh, February, 2009. Um, 
Jeff talking, talking about the, uh, the Tropicana. So uh, here we go. No, granted, uh, I'm sure that they have to pay you to stay in their rooms. They'd have to pay <laughs> you to eat their meals and they'd have to guarantee blackjacks on every hand. Pretty I, mean, much. I mean, you know, how can, I mean, when you have hotels in prim, letting people stay for free, um, you know, I, I, I went around the Tropicana um, last weekend. That It is not a handsome property. <laughs> um, you know, particularly like the old, the casino level, it has sort of like Coney Island, you know, funky, wooden, weird color paint on on it it's you know on the on the exterior the inside is still not clean it is not a it is not a good looking property they don't have you know they've had their shows canceled or stolen um it, you know, I, I just, I, you know, they, if there could, and, and you hit the nail on the head, Hunter, how could they pick a, they couldn't pick a worse time to try and sell the value proposition. I mean, you know, maybe, you know, maybe they could come up with like a haunted house theme or, you know, some kind of, some kind of, you know, out, out there. Um, marketing pitch, but it's just so tough to sell value when you already have great properties that are dramatically cutting prices. Well, and the story, I think the last remodel story about the TROP was that they plan to bring customers in by, like, installing a food court or something like that. I mean, this was a couple months ago. But, I mean, to me, it just shows this total, like, out-to-lunch mentality to some degree. Now, I realize that they don't have the greatest assets to work with here. But, I mean, in a uh, food court, look across the street. New York, New York has a food court. MGM Mirage, I mean, MGM Grand I mean, you know, has sort of a higher-priced food court, but they have fast food in their their walkway uh, retail area. You know, Excalibur, I mean, you know, I just, you know, they can't be, they can't be better than any of their neighbors. I mean, I guess they could, like, spend a little bit of money and say, you know, we have, we're a little bigger than Hooters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that that line at the end, right? It was uh, <laughs> we're a little bit bigger than Hooters. That's sort of classic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I also forgot to mention it, that that was when Bellagio was charging like eighty six bucks a night. It was at the bottom of the uh, the market with the economy and whatnot. So. They they had a Tropicana was in a, was in dire straits and to try and wallpaper that kind of bullshit. Uh, of course, Jeff called them on it in an extremely hysterical, wonderful way. I think I think you're right, Chuck. That really kind of illustrated, in some ways, a transition for him. You know, because when he was at the newspaper, you can't really call people out like that in the same way. At least, I, you know, he did do some editorial work there and wrote some editorials. But in a traditional newspaper story, you can't. Um, necessarily inject so much of your own uh, opinion. And as he kind of grew more comfortable with this part of uh, the medium, we got to see more of that, um, you know, the, the personality come out and more of those opinions without any, uh, without any holding back, which yeah. was always, yeah. always entertaining. Right. I mean, it was, it was incredibly great. And, and Columbia Sussex ended up being like one of his great, you know, arch nemeses, you know, yeah. <laughs> they come up again in another clip I'm going to play here. But I mean, there, was, there are, and there are other, other 
aspects of that too. I mean, he, uh, he, you know, the, after they went after him, he, uh, he definitely held a special place in his heart for putting them down whenever he got the opportunity. And it was not petty necessarily. It was well-founded. These guys were clowns and, yeah. uh, made Ass count- clowns. Yes. And made, <laughs> made countless mistakes. Um, then he was, uh, you know, lucky enough to be able to, to be there to, uh, to remind us all. What a great feather in your cap, you know, to have a casino company buy a full page ad, you know, saying what a what a horrible guy you are as a journalist when you're when you're reporting the truth. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it's fantastic. I if if only uh, I would love to rise to that level of notoriety. <laughs> um so what one of uh, his his other constant targets was the media, um, and it, you know as he became more interested in other in other new forms of publishing like Twitter, um, he would you know many mornings you'd wake up and see you could tell when Jeff got up and started reading the Sun and RJ websites right because there's like this stream of links and being like. You know, yeah. this person was lazy, or this person is right on, or this person's facts are wrong. And it wasn't all, definitely not all negative. He definitely would call out the stories that he thought were well put together. And, you know, someone coming from that business, he had a unique, you know, had some good insight into how those stories are, how those stories come together. And when it, whether a reporter was just being lazy or whether or not it was, you know, there's some other um, organizational issue with the paper that, or the editor on the story that, you know, wouldn't, that, didn't care enough to move forward or didn't want to for some reason. I mean, there's all kinds of sort of backroom mechanics that go into what makes it into the newspaper, whether it's, um, you know, from a reporter just not putting together a very good story to some other reason. So he had some great insight and, you know, you would wake up and you'd see these, these Twitter posts like, Oh, you know, this is great. This is terrible. And they were always funny. And he, you know, Jeff, as has been said several times in some of the blog posts that that were written to memorialize him, he you know he was not known for brevity. Um, he he <laughs> he he loved to talk and he loved to share his opinions and and so Twitter you'd think wouldn't be a natural medium for him because it's limited to 140 characters and um, you know yes sometimes he did you know expand his thoughts into multiple tweets but it, he really took to it and it was amazing I think he really enjoyed it he, it was a way that he could communicate directly with the people that, um, you know, found his analysis valuable. And, uh, I can only imagine what else we would have seen from him along that front. If, if this hadn't have happened, because I think, you know, as, as this technology changes and society changes around it, I I think it's the changes that I think are happening are perfect, perfectly set up for a guy like Jeff and how he was positioning himself. Uh, you know, as an expert that, um, you know, is not afraid of technology and commands a loyal following of people. I mean, I think he was really well set for, um, sort of the way that news is transforming. And it's really, it's really a shame that, that, uh, he's not going to get to participate in that and that we're not going to get a chance to hear everything that he would have said. Yeah. But, um, so I've got another clip here that I want to play, and this one's, I think, a little bit shorter. Um, this is basically uh, – I was listening back to past episodes over the last couple of weeks, and um, this is sort of Jeff ranting on the media a little bit. I, we were talking about the deaths of uh, Don Barden and William Pennington, um, who uh, I think this sort of was came up 
around the idea that they hadn't been their debts hadn't been really covered significantly in the local media. And uh, you know that right on cue, Jeff was ready to uh, to to place some blame. So here's another clip, and you can <clears throat> hear it for yourself. Kind, perhaps. Yeah. Um, all well, right. What, what, one thing that I would I would say, Hunter, you're absolutely I, right. I'm um, cl- clearly um, the people should have paid, you know, should have paid more attention to it. Um, I'm going to blame the news media for that. I mean, you know, the public, <laughs> the public's interest is is uh, pretty ephemeral, but the news media needed to be on those stories more than they were. It was a very lame effort um, by our print media. You know, um, you know, heck, you can't pay attention to a casino, you know, a, a, a prominent casino executive or two dying when you have the Billboard Music Awards coming up. You know, the Sugar <laughs> Factory is introducing a new lollipop. And uh, there's a there's there's one of the hottest DJs playing at a club on the strip. Those are the kind of things that people are focusing on nowadays. And, uh, you know. I would just say that's pathetic. I mean, you know, that was a great example of Jeff kind of, you know, when when you got him started, he was like, a, you know, a big boulder rolling down a hill, right? You couldn't get him to stop. He he, no. he would just sort of pick up steam. And, um, yeah, you know, he had a lot of criticism for, for the local media. And I think uh, some of it, a lot of it deserved, you know, and that's, that's – uh, there's a that's a broad brush to paint with, but I think you know that that those two stories illustrated those were important important events that didn't seem to be well covered and and, uh, and you know it was obvious that Jeff disagreed with that and um, and uh, wasn't afraid to share his opinion. Yeah, and the thing was, he was absolutely right. You know, they should have covered those a little bit more, um, and I think it just speaks to the state of what's going on with the gaming coverage here. You know, it's a business that we all know is not always the most forthcoming and really likes to manage the story and control the story. And I think it takes a certain kind of journalist to get through that. And, you know, we definitely lost one of the few. Yeah. It's, you know, one of the things that I've been thinking about over the past few weeks is sort of if we'll see another person like Jeff, again and how how someone like him kind of comes together to be sort of the holistic um being that he was you know all of his different experiences and uh, you know obviously you start with someone that's really quite intelligent you you add a bunch of life experiences but i think one of the things and this came up in talking to his friends and his family when we were um uh participating in some of his memorial stuff was uh you know he really loved gambling he really loved the gambling business, and that oftentimes seems to stand in contrast to some of the other um, newspaper reporters that uh, I've seen. You know, I, I, I <clears throat> some of them don't seem to enjoy it all that much, and um, I think it makes a big difference. It really comes through in the writing and and the commentary, and it, you know, I think especially those kinds of combinations of qualities plus. The sort of the sort of nexus, this twist of the system, where he had the opportunity to get some training as a classical journalist. So he definitely learned, I think, you know, the good parts of that job. You know, the ways to build a story and the ways to, you know, make sure you've got all your you got your facts together and and um, <clears throat> a lot of that sort of classical training, the positive stuff. Uh, it it's hard for me to imagine 
that the current, you know, the current environment is someone coming up today. It, there'll be, it'll be different. You won't see the same kind of combination of characteristics that would, uh, that would, that would lead you there. And I, you know, I know that's not to say that there won't be great investigative, um, you know, well, I mean, maybe there won't be, but there are definitely a lot of people doing a lot of good work looking at the industry and, and writing about it. And I think, um, you know, look at you look at a site like yours, Chuck. I mean, it, it it's sort of like the new model for a lot of that stuff, and it seems to be working quite well. And Dave, you wrote about um, Vegas tripping in in seven, and how and how <clears throat> Vegas tripping has been first on a lot of breaking news, which is a very interesting shift. And you know, I think Jeff also would have been one of the first people to sort of champion that. He was a big fan of some of this disruptive new media stuff. But um, yeah, it's interesting to see how the world has changed, and I, it's hard. It's hard for me to imagine the same sort of primordial ooze coming together in a way that would that would <clears throat> create another person like Jeff in the same kind of capacity. I think Jeff, you're right. Always, you go, Dave. Yeah, I think you're right for a couple reasons. You know, first of all, like you said, a lot of the folks covering gambling don't really like it very much. You know, um, for a lot of folks in the media, Vegas is a top 50 market, but it's not a top 10 market, which is where you want to get to. So it's one stop along the way for a lot of folks. Mm -hmm. And, you know, quite frankly, a lot of people who cover gambling, both from the journalism side and from the academic side, really just don't seem to like it. And they kind of look down on people who actually gamble. Um, And it's funny because a lot of these same people I think are unduly deferential towards the people who run the casino companies. So on one hand, they kind of give them a a spot of real privilege and, you know, they've done such great work and so on and so forth. But the people who actually come here and spend their money and drive the whole system, they – they kind of look at them a little bit contemptuously. So that's one reason. The second reason I think it's so hard to combine having having that sense of judgment with having the actual inside access. You know, it seems like you either have people who have the access and don't want to do anything to jeopardize it, and so they basically run the press releases, or you've got people who are outside just kind of throwing bombs, right. but they don't have the real information, so it's not really – all you get from that, that is that they don't like this these people, and you don't really – there's nothing really substantial. So I think that's why it will be tough to see someone else like Jeff come along. No, I think you're right. Chuck, did you have something you wanted to say? Yeah, you know, Jeff was was like a, a gray lady, New York Times-style reporter, you know, tenacious, willing to work hard to get the facts, to find a story and to make it happen. And he was at the sun at the time that the industry – the news industry in general transitioned from that type of reporting to, you know, what they're doing now, which is more like a HuffPo, uh, Silicon Alley insider kind of light, snarky-ish news with with the the uh, you know two big uh, arms of celebrity coverage wrapping it around it, and and you know he. He was the guy who should have – if I were running the newspaper, I would have booted him upstairs. Right. Instead of going towards this nonsense that they're trying to publish now, you know, is to drive the paper 
to still being a newspaper, you know, a play, a thing you can read, a thing you can, you know, you want to have, you want to pay the, the two bucks a week or so to have it delivered on your front door. And, you know, with it, Within all of this, the the commentary about Jeff saying, uh, you know, his critiques of the media also was very generous in his praise. Mm -hmm. You know, he always called out like a great Howard Stutz article, always Mm -hmm. was saying what a good job Liz was doing, Liz Benston was doing, and Rick Vallada as well, you know, and – as somebody who who a couple times was on the receiving end of that praise, it's pretty fucking awesome to hear it from Jeff. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. You know, um, even the interview he did with you, Hunter, when he said nice stuff about me, that was that was really nice to hear. And you know, he didn't have to do it, and it means a lot. So yeah, absolutely right. It it does, you know, and it it means it meant a lot means and meant a lot of me, a lot to me too there was an interview he did with um night with for the nighttime with Irish show a couple a couple of weeks ago that I had not heard in the first airing and it was re-aired last week and um it was another one of these interviews where he uh, was very complimentary about about you know us I and some of the work that we've been doing and it you know it when we started doing this show um I did the equivalent of cold calling him. I mean, I cold emailed him. You know, I didn't know Jeff. I knew his writing and I thought, hey, you know what? What do I have to lose? I can email this guy and see if he wants to do the show. And he was game. He was totally into it. And I think that also was one of his great strengths was this fearlessness. And actually you see that in a lot of traditional media, you know, they have to be dragged kicking and screaming into the 21st century and, uh, you know, a lot, often to their detriment, they've had, it it has hurt them quite a bit that they've uh, been sort of behind the curve, but he wasn't like that. You know, it's a lot of this stuff, you know, from a very sort of conservative perspective, um, you might believe that it threatens your livelihood and that it's going to tear down your industry. Um, And, you know, that's not to say that we're not in a very uh, tumultuous period when it comes to publishing, but he wasn't scared to dive in and do something new and different and um, embrace it, which I thought was, you know, very commendable and interesting for someone, especially for someone that, you know, come up in newspapers. It's, you know, with so many folks that, that work in that industry, um, especially that have been there for a long time, don't do that. So it, you know, it's, I, I always felt that that was, uh, quite commendable that he was willing to to give it a try, and I, you know, I I think that he really that he really liked it, and I I feel like it was my honor to be able to work with him uh, on the show and and with some of his writing stuff. It was it was just incredible, and I I still can't believe that he sent me his last story. I mean, I just it, I'm to be perfectly honest and frank about it. I I. I'm sort of still in denial about the whole thing. Um, you know, it's, I think maybe that is part of a relationship like this where most of our communication is through email and, and uh, over over the phone or through the internet. You know, when you don't see somebody every day and um, and and then they're gone, it, it's, you know, I'm hoping I'm going to wake up and find out he's been on vacation or something. And yeah. uh, he's got some great story he's going to share because it just doesn't seem real. It just seems it no. seems insane. It is insane. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Not to be too incredibly depressing. Um, so 
I, I got another clip here that I wanted to play, and this is sort of, you know, this is this is just a, another sort of funny rant. And um, this is actually recent. This is uh, from our um, live show that we did as part of the Vegas Internet Mafia family picnic back in uh, October. And, you know, Jeff um, Jeff loved, I think, being in front of the crowd. He was in his element. And we got back and we got back talking about uh, his good friends at uh, Columbia Sussex. And, you know, he really <laughs> he really let loose this time. Um, and it, it's, it's quite funny. This is a longer clip. It's about three minutes, but, uh, it, it's worthwhile. So I'm going to play that now. Losing that place as well. So they're exiting this market. Jeff, how sad are you about <laughs> Columbia Sussex leaving Las Vegas? You know, for, um, the market and for the casino business to lose a visionary, a genius like Bill Young, um, probably the brightest of the Columbia, I mean, I'm sorry, he and his Columbia Sussex cohort um, were probably the brightest, the most intelligent group of Kentucky imbeciles ever, ever to enter the ever to enter the casino owning business on a large scale in Las Vegas. Um, probably also the dumbest because there haven't been many, um, although there, you know. Actually, Northern Kentucky with Newport has a great history in gambling, and Dr. Dave could probably tell you all about that. It's um, it appeal. It's a market that uh, goes after my home state of Ohio, so I sort of have a you know uh, a uh, um, warm spot in my heart for people who have are connected to Ohio, and I think Columbia Sussex, even though they're in Kentucky, they you know that's really Greater Cincinnati where they're at. Um, but they've just proven themselves to be such fools. I've had a long-running battle with them. Um, they took out a full-page newspaper ad in the Review Journal um, calling me and my status as a business, business journalist an oxymoron. You know, a for a company that was about to go bankrupt, spending 15 or 20K on that, um, you know, probably sort of a reflection on their, uh, on their uh, Kentucky IQs. So... Um, I should be nicer to Kentucky. Sorry. Kentucky. Have you considered framing a copy and sending it back to Bill? You know, that's that's actually amusing. I, you know, I certainly, you know, left him a voicemail message um, after that. And, you know, I mean, if he if anybody who thinks that going after a journalist in a public setting is distressing to a journalist, I mean, it really is a badge of honor. And journalists love that. Um, so thank you, Bill Young. And uh, adios, Bill Young. We are uh, we, uh, Bill. We hardly knew ye, um, and uh, and uh, you know your uh, your predecessors made out like bandits when you bought the property for ridiculously high pr the property and its Billy, sister properties for a ridiculously high price. You amused us with your uh, your insane idea to build a ten thousand room um, collection of. Uh, crappy airport hotel quality hotel rooms and a and a cobbled together casino you exited with your tail between your legs and you're back to run <clears throat> you're back to running uh, moldy carpet smelling airport motels gouging travelers around the nation so good to you bill young in columbia <laughs> sussex i hate you <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh boy! Oh yeah. So you know that's that's <laughs> like that, one. that that rant. You know, it's definitely escaped the vault. And I would just like to say, the Vegas gang has nothing against people from Kentucky. We love Kentucky. Um, I'm sure that you're. I've never been to Kentucky, but I'm sure it's wonderful. Um, but yes, definitely reflects on um, sort of the contempt he held the Columbia Sussex folks in after uh, that incident, and um, you know, seeing them uh, being forced to exit the Las Vegas market. Uh, due to what, you know, I hard to say, I mean, yes, they were trapped in the economy like everybody else, but hard, it's hard to say anything other than their incompetence. Um, (laughs) you know, I think it definitely provided him, um, a little bit of, uh, joy might be too strong of a word, but Sachsenfreude or however you pronounce that. uh, Schadenfreude times 10. Yes. The German, (laughs) uh, the German term. I think he really enjoyed that. So, you know, I guess what goes around comes around as they say. Uh, yeah, it wasn't necessarily unwarranted. You know, they did take a run at him. They sure did. So, And it, it's kind of funny. I mean, kind of the last word in them is they managed to sweet talk their way out of a license in New Jersey just by misrepresenting themselves at the Casino Control Commission and being yeah. tools there. And they managed to do such a bad job that the people who took it over from them, you know, basically you had the president leave after less than a year, places still losing money, you know, big questions for entertainment, and it's still a success story. Right. So that just shows how incredibly low they set the bar. No, it's true. I think uh, they they probably would have provided many more punchlines, but they uh, couldn't even get that far. They uh, Well, maybe, they, maybe we can get them to acquire the Hilton, the former Hilton. See, there you go. <laughs> And come up with a, with a better name than the uh, LVH that we're going to be getting over there. Um, you know, so as part of this process, I listen to a lot of different shows. And, um, I, you know, that those are the clips that I brought for today. But there there is a ton of more stuff out there. And there are some really great episodes that, that you know, that either had uh, quotable moments from Jeff, but that are just actually really good. I'm I'm really proud of some of the shows that we've done. Um, especially, you know, we did that interview with Anthony Marnell over the summer, which I listened back to all the way through and yeah. it was fun to do at the time, but to listen to it again is even, it was even better a second time around. I mean, the guy was just incredibly honest with us about, yeah. you know, sort of the roller coaster that his life had been throughout that process. And I liked listening to it. Uh, you know, like, you know, when I let, whenever I listened to a past episode for the first minute or two, I kind of recoil at the sound of my own voice, but then I kind of get over it and to get into the groove. And, um, you know, it was, it was really quite interesting, um, and entertaining. And I, I'm proud that we have, you know, a, a bunch of those, um, some are, I would, I don't think it's unfair to say some are better than others, but, uh, <laughs> there's, there's some fun, some fun and good stuff. And, you know, sort of my mark of a great episode was always afterwards, when I would see like tweets from the three of you guys saying like, that was great. You know, that was fun. <laughs> and that you, then I knew that we had really done a great, a great show. And it was like, man, that was awesome. Um, then, and, and uh, so whenever I saw those, it was always, it always um, made me, you know, really happy to see that. And, you know, Jeff is such a huge part of it. And it's just, you know, we're never, we're, he's, he's left shoes too big to fill. I, and like I said, at the top of the show, uh, you know, it's not our intention to try to replace him. Um, it's just that would be impossible. But uh, I, <clears throat> I think we love doing this stuff, and 
Um, he would want us here doing what we can. And, you know, over the past couple weeks, as, uh, you know, we got a chance to participate in some of the memorial events for Jeff, we also got, the three of us got a chance to talk about the show a little bit. And I think there's some great ideas for some upcoming interviews. And of course, you know, the news never stops marching on. Um, so I think, you know, we'll definitely, uh, be able to bring some, hopefully, uh, cogent and intelligent insight. Um, but you know, it's something that I just love doing and I, I know Jeff loved doing it too. And I think one of the ways that we can sort of pay tribute to him is to try and do the best show that we can. Absolutely. You know, it's, sometimes it feels like it'd be easier just to kind of quit and give up and say, well, you know, it's just too tough to do it without him. But I think that's really doing a disservice to Jeff. And, you know, I know it's going to make me dig into these stories a little harder and try to take a closer look at what I'm writing. And, you know, I think in the end, he's just going to raise everybody's expectations for what to expect in writing and talking about Vegas. Yeah. No, I think, you know, and actually that's one of the thoughts that I've had too, is like, as we think about future analysis and doing shows, like, you know, I honestly, Jeff leaves a huge hole and I have to really raise my game to try and fill that or else the audience is going to be bored. And, um, I, I don't, I don't know if I can, but I love the challenge and, um, I, uh, I'll never know as much as Jeff did, but, um, Mm -hmm. I hope that uh, we can continue to entertain some folks and, you know, have a good time doing it at the same time. You know, guys, the show must go on for one reason and one reason only. Five days from now, Sam Nazarian returns to Las Vegas. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. <laughs> so we've, got ma- we've got a lot of material coming. So, <laughs> oh, don't get me started on Hyde, man. I was walking through the Bellagio last week, and it was just it. They they turned this like incredibly beautiful, um, the Fontana Bar with like this you know vista from the casino out over the lake and some natural light coming in and you know, appropriately curved. It really fits well in that space. And they've turned it into this giant, like Berlin wall of nightclubism. I mean, it's just like, it's so oppressive. It's, it's, oh man. It, uh, I, I look forward to seeing the inside, but from, from the casino, it, it really, it seems very, you know, sort of the glowing Soviet school of design. Something just occurred to me and it's based on, I think it was a Twitter exchange I was watching with you and someone else a while ago as far as online comments go and kind of turning over your commenting to Facebook and why would you want to give them that power of your site? It seems like that's what MGM has really done, you know, given this prime piece of real estate to somebody else. Yeah, that's And it's like they're really there. I mean, this is the pinnacle of the property besides the – uh, Arboretum, whatever they call it. What do they call it? Conservatory. Besides a conservatory. I mean, that's it right there. So I think it says a lot about management when they're willing to give that and I say, do. okay, you can, you, you're in charge of this. It we're will. not. It says we don't have an idea for that space. It says we couldn't do anything better, right? Because they have yeah. to give away a lot of the financial incentive to a third party to, to, uh, to get them to do it. So, you know, Clearly, if they had a better idea that they thought was going to make money, they would have done that instead. But they threw up their hands and decided to outsource it. Now, you know, I don't think that there's 
you know, outsourcing somebody to an expert can be uh, a fruitful partnership. But, um, you know, you are talking about a key, a key element of that resort. I mean, it's one of the best pieces of real estate on the strip, probably, right? That little section. And mm-hmm. it's a coup for, uh, for Sammy boy to, uh, have, to have, uh, gotten it from them. I mean, it's, it's pretty, um, it's a pretty great spot. Yeah, I mean, what I don't get is that Randy Morton's not a dumb guy, and he's not a complacent guy either. You know, I've talked to him, and he really feels this sense of urgency about keeping the standards up at the Bellagio. And, you know, on his watch, he's not going to – he doesn't want to see that hotel move down in the MGM packing order. So I'm, I, would, I would love to find out what's driving these discussions internally and know what the actual strategic plan is here for the property well, corporate, for the next five years. Corporate-wide, though – MGM has never done nightlife on their own, right? They've outsourced it all, whether it be to, you know, Light Group or other entities. It, it never seems to be something they that they have tried to take on themselves. So either, you know, either they see their arrangement with these other operators as something that works. You know, it's something that doesn't require a lot of oversight. They just get a check uh, and they're happy with that. Or maybe they feel like they're lacking some kind of critical component. They can't do it for some reason. Or maybe even beyond that, I can't imagine that there's some kind of like legal or liability reason they wouldn't want to do it themselves. That well, wouldn't make any sense. I think for the night, for the nightlife stuff, there's definitely a good reason for the license. You know, if you remember what happened at Planet Hollywood with uh, whatever the name of the club was, Privé. Privé, yes. Cliche. cliche yes. Privé. Climax. Um, oh, wait, no. Cle- cli- yeah. <laughs> A cleavage. Um, so when when <laughs> things went when things went th- south at Privé, they could say, you know, like I'm shocked, shocked to learn that there's drug use and all kinds of other stuff going on in the nightclub. And wow, we had no idea they were doing that there. I think it kind of helps a casino to have that to have a level um, of deniability like that. But you know, uh, yeah, I don't know at all. Because also could be that it's a tough business to stay ahead in and. You know, I guess people who look like they know what they're doing look like they know what they're doing. But so I, you know, maybe no, maybe we don't know. But how do these deals work? I mean, they're obviously doing the refurb of this part of the casino uh, was not a cheap uh, project, right? They put a lot of money into building out what you know, converting the building. And is it like um, you know when you lease a retail space and you have to do the improvements, or the te- or the landlord does the improvements? I mean, there's a lot of way these deals work. Do mm-hmm. we know is MGM paying for all of that stuff? Is SBE paying for that stuff? Is it a split? I mean, I, we probably don't know, but it would be interesting to know. I guess we'll find out when the next quarterly uh, conference call is. We should. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm sure, you know, this is – I've said since the beginning, I think this was baked into the Sahara closing, you know, that they would toss the one club over to those guys and then SPE is feeding people into the M Life as well and back and forth and yada, yada, yada. And they have a uh, an agreement just like you said, Hunter, the, the landlord is going to do part of this and the uh, lessee is going to do the other part of it. So – Basically, what MGM is doing is they have a two-pronged attack. They're going to be Marriott and they're going to be Westfield. They're a landlord. They're just a mall and they're booking space. They can bank that the bank and all these other joints are going to pay their whatever million dollars a month rent that and they take have the to risk. pay. Exactly, and take the mm-hmm. risk. But here's the dumb part, and Jeff would say this too, is – you know, his exact quote was that the money falls the fastest from the ceiling to the floor in the nightclub. There's mm-hmm. no risk. There's no risk at all in a $500 bottle of vodka. 
but there's risk in a $500 hand of blackjack, you know? So why would MGM take the risk in the casino and not take the risk in a no-risk environment? It's hard for me to – I mean I, it's, I, w- I would love to know what the calculation is behind that because you look at some of their competitors and you look at Wynn, right? So Wynn went out and they found partners, but they they own – you know they have significant equity in the nightclub operations that – at least most of them, you know, Access and Trist. The deals for Surrender might be a little bit different, but, um, you know, they, they – it's you know well. It seems like Win as a company has sort of tried to follow this model um, in sort of the grander scheme, right? Where a lot of other operators will uh, four wall shows or or four wall restaurants and and basically you know um, give them out to other operators. Win has always kind of wanted to own the whole box to try and make the most yeah. amount of money. It seems like that's worked well for them. Right. Yeah, and if you look at places that do more of the four walling stuff, they tend not to be as successful. You well, know, you, um, I know the Riviera just did that with most of their outlets. You have uneven – the sort of the economic incentives are misplaced. To, if your goal is to have like an, uh, a totally awesome-looking, well-run operation, when you've got all these different people that are sort of optimizing for their own uh, well-being and not sort of the overall well-being, you get uh, – you know, you get a situation where the place isn't maybe as spiffy or as nice or as well put together as it could be, right? Because there's just people are pulling in different directions. Yeah, I mean, that's what the stations people said about Coco's or Denny's or whoever they sublet their cafes to before they took them back. And another thing to kind of, I don't know, have the evidence against is that Planet Hollywood, all their restaurants except for the buffet are apparently not owned by Caesars Entertainment which is I was surprised to find out even the coffee shop isn't. So hmm. I guess it works for some people. Yeah. Well, also, you know, some of that may just be carryover from the yeah. previous. And it would be interesting to see as those, you know, over time, if they decide to break some of those leases or, you know, not renew them or if they do renew them, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see. Uh, I guess if the restaurants are working, they won't feel much, uh, much pressure to, to change. But, you know, one of the one of the topics I did want to talk about, we sort of touched on it briefly when we were talking about the Tropicana, was Tom McCartney, who has was our guest on uh, for uh, Vegas podcast, Apalooza Trey. Um, was a great guest, really fun guy, really, uh, really, you know, got a good sense of humor. Um, that was funny. Yeah, he, so he went from running Tropicana to now being in sort of, I would, you know, sort of, sort of say de facto number two slot at cosmopolitan and um this is a guy that has a lot of strip experience you know worked for mgm for a long time he's been all around worked at planet hollywood um worked at tropicana the couple of people that i know that have worked for him have nothing but great things to say about the guy um he's now at cosmo a place that has really struggled with their casino operations you know they've got really strong numbers for their rooms and their food and beverage but for the casino it's really been a tough go for them you know, is he uh, the magic bullet? Is he the fixer that is going to, um, you know, put them over the top, or, or is there something else? Is there something else going on here? It's, it's, what do you guys think? I'm going to say yes, he's a fixer. I think this is just a gut thought, but I think Deutsche Bank called him in. Um, just guessing here. I have no inside information. I'm going to think they said we need to get some help in here. Uh, John's covering what he can, but he's he can't get this thing done. So they called in a guy who's who's proven to do it. You know, he 
was part of a, a New York, New York resurgence, Luxor, their half redesign. Um, he brought Planet Hollywood from the depths of a joke to being a place that people really liked uh, up to the acquisition. And uh, he managed the Tropicana going from Nowheresville to, you know, the corner of Somewheresville. So I I think Tom is the right guy. I think he's – I don't expect him to be around for long. He's a jumper. He's going to stay there. He's going to fix some stuff. He's going to sort it out. He's going to get their marketing to stop being so hoo-ha or to uh, to uh, drop some of the hipster stuff and realize, you know, we got a casino here too. We're not we're not just selling scarves and 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 Christmas sweaters, um, you know, to to bring the business in line with actual, you know, straight up sensible business practices. Listening back to the show. Uh, that we did with him, you know, that guy is smart as a whip. He's got his bullet points memorized. He's he's uh, uh, a huge advocate of service culture and not just, you know, vacant eyes with a smile, which is what goes on at the Cosmopolitan now, but people who say yes and they treat you well and they really make sure your shit gets done. Right. You know, the real dotting I's and the dotting of the T's, that's Tom McCartney, and I think he's going to do a great job there. Do you think that it's more likely that he is a temporary fixer or lining himself up for Unwin's job? Well, interesting. I don't think I don't think John Unwin's going to go anywhere unless they fire him. Right. And I don't think Tom wants to be anywhere forever. Because his history is he's a fixer and he leaves. Right. I don't foresee him stay. Maybe that's his ultimate goal is he wanted to prove his his experience with each of these successive success stories. Well, one thing that's interesting to look at, if you look at their relative experience, you know, Unwin was at Caesars for a long time, but he was in hotel ops, right? He really came up as a hotel operator, not a casino executive, not a gaming operator, where McCartney has had operational um, you know, authority over both sides of that for in a bunch of different properties up and down the strip. So, you know, he he definitely has got more uh, tenure when it comes to you know running the gaming side of the business, not just making sure that you know the turndown service happened on time. Right. Yeah. Well, I think push is going to sh- going to yeah push is going to come to shove when the folks at Deutsche Bank have to decide whether they're going to keep on emphasizing the brand and the hipster stuff. Or they're going to try to get people in the casino playing slot machines. You know, that's where we're going to see what happens. Obviously, it's great for the food and beverage and rooms if you're just kind of creating this ethereal brand for the Cosmopolitan and it's such a cool place to be. But that's not getting people at the slot machines. And it's kind of a battle between commerce and trying to make money right now and just kind and just creating this brand. And it'll be interesting to see which side wins. And obviously, you know, I think McCartney's going to be more on the commerce, getting people in the casino side of that battle. I think it's good for them to show a high-profile hire, right? Because it feels like they've just been taking on water for the last nine months after they sort of got out of that initial opening period. And, you know, a, a lot of folks criticizing them and saying they they just don't have their shit together. Um you know, this hopefully will uh, will stem some of that, and they'll be able to show. Uh, you know, it, it's not going to be an overnight fix, no matter who they bring in. But um, the, he's a smart guy. I think 
you know, they've got a, a solid shot. Will they, you know, will they listen to him? If not, then they may be just as screwed as ever. But uh, if they do, I think they've got a, a solid shot because they've got a lot of smart people working over there. Mm. And they're in a great location. They've got a lot of stuff going for them. They can turn it around if they do the right thing. Well, the thing is, though, that bothers me is that, you know, John Unwin is a great hotel guy and knows a ton about running hotels. And a lot of the problems that some people in this podcast have had with the place is with the hotel operations. It's true. Yeah. So how do, how do you explain that? It's, it's it's an excellent question. I mean, I, you know, they've they've made some personnel changes in some of those departments already. Um, I I you know I still hear different stories from people, though I do hear a lot of positive. Um, in it, you know, I think to some degree you can chalk that up to the chaos of a new property, but yeah, you're right. There, are, it's it's hard to excuse that when your chief executive's main body of experience is in providing luxury service. It it makes that narrative a lot harder to buy. Yeah. I think it's a legitimate question. Yeah. Um, January first is Tom's first day on the job, so we'll find out. Yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to make a run at him for to do a article, but we'll see how uh, how far that goes. I'd really like to. I'd really like to, like to catch up with him and kind of share his story. Yeah, in his words. So we'll see. Hopefully, it happens. Tom, you know, uh, I know you're starting <laughs> soon, but why don't you come up to Alaska? We'll do some fishing. We can do some bonding. <laughs> yeah, we should get uh, we should get John and Tom on the show together. John, Tom, John, Tom. Good. So if it was three against two, <laughs> both of those guys are witty and they're both very smart. And McCartney's hysterical. You know, John's funny too. I think that would be a good uh, a good chit chat sesh. I think it'd be great. Love to have him anytime. I'll bring the scotch. <laughs> One of the- we, also, we also have to figure out how to get Tom McCartney on Twitter. Yes, excellent point. Excellent point. So we can find out what his you know what his favorite brand of tequila is and where he likes yeah. to where he likes to go fishing. Where he likes to hide his mismatched burgundy. <laughs> um, before we go. Uh, Dave, there, there's sort of a two prong stories that I wanted to talk about that um, you wrote about that I think are, are pretty interesting. On, on sort of to close out the year, we had uh, Friday was actually a busier news day than you usually see at the end of December. Um, we had both the uh, sort of the Nevada gaming apparatus coming through with their regulations for poker, and then we also had the United States Justice Department clarify. Uh, some of their interpretation of the Wire Act, which both uh, are, have significance, and you know, especially with the Wire Act, Dave, you wrote an entire book about about that topic. So um, they, you know, they may not be completely intertwined, but I think they're you know, they do have some a little bit of crossover, and are both interesting topics. Um, can you give us the penny tour on what happened on Friday? Yeah, you know, in one sentence, this means that internet gaming is going to be here sooner rather than later. Um, basically, the Justice Department ruling, you know, there's still Nelson Rose, uh, gaming law attorney, said it was an early Christmas present to gaming, basically gaming attorneys, because I think there's still a lot of ambiguity about internet gambling. Basically, this says that it doesn't violate the Wire Act, so it's not a criminal offense on the federal level to send non-sports related gambling information across state lines, which means that if New York and Illinois are running online lotteries and some of the processing of the processing of the orders is going to be taking place outside of the state, that is legal. So basically you're going to see states getting into the lottery business. 
you're also going to see states getting into other kinds of casinos because they're not going to stop with just lotteries. Just like with the brick-and-mortar terrestrial real-life stuff, they didn't just stop with lotteries. I think they're going to get into casino gaming and maybe even sports betting, um, but definitely poker. So does this mean that I'm going to be able to like play the New York lottery in California? No. Um, the way the the way the New York lottery um, proposal, whatever you want to call it, is is set up, basically they're in New York State. But it's just that in processing it, some of the material would be relayed out of state. So they were afraid it would violate the law. But basically people in the state of New York can use their lottery ticket to buy – can use their computer to buy lottery tickets. I know, see. Which, isn't, which is kind of a baby step. You know, sure. obviously the next big step is – you get the multi-state, you know, Powerball, those people involved. Right. And pretty much I think you have it on, on an opt-in basis from states as long as they can verify that you're not in Utah or Hawaii or other states that don't want to participate. It shouldn't be a problem. And once they figure out the revenue share, that that's what will probably happen. And as far as poker goes, um, does this mean we're going to see online poker offered to, you know, residents of states that support it? Like I assume Nevada would be at the top of that list. Yeah, and this is a really big deal. And this is something, if I can borrow a page out of Jeff's book, I don't think really got the coverage it deserved in the newspaper. You know, when this happened, it was kind of buried way down. I would have thought this would have been a big headline top of the page, which is basically the Nevada Gaming Commission legalized online poker uh, last Friday, last Thursday and created the framework for it. They've been authorized to do it by the legislature earlier, but this is a really big deal um, because this means that if you live in the state of Nevada, you'll be able to play online poker within probably by next year, sometime late, sometime late next year. I did a couple things. You know, I started doing a blog about it for Two Way Hard 3, and then I said, well, I've got to do this really – need to understand this better, so I did need like a really in-depth kind of Cliff Notes version of the – um, regulation changes. So I ended up doing that for the UNLV Center for Gaming Research site. So it's basically, if you think the six pages is too long, maybe it's five pages is too long. Keep in mind, this is about 50 pages of regulation changes that I had to go through to get the five page version. And basically what it does is it sets up a, a class of gambling called interactive gaming and kind of specifies exactly how you get a license and what you have to do on your site to allow it. And it's pretty – It's. I'm not going to say it's surprising, but there's some really interesting stuff in there. So definitely read the report if you're uh, interested in that. So based on, on, what, uh, on what they put through last week, are we going to see um, Nevada operators partner with existing poker providers? Are they going to see them – are we going to see Nevada operators create their own poker sites that work within the state – boundaries? How do you, yeah. what's your guess? It's going to be a little bit of both. I mean, you have some folks um, like Caesars and I believe it's BWIN or maybe 888 or maybe both. I'm a little bit foggy on that right now, you know, where they partner with somebody. You've also got the manufacturers, Bally, IGT, and a couple others are building their own sites that they'll basically, basically they're providing the software Mm-hmm. For the site. So just like they do with the slot machines where they say, we'll build, build you a slot machine and you buy it from us, that's what they're doing. Mm-hmm. You know? um, so that, and that's definitely something that's reflected in the regulations. So you know, if I was working for IGT or Bally, I would be on the phone right now pitching the casino saying, hey, look, why bother going, you know, going to all the problem, trying to reinvent the wheel? We can do this for you. Let's do it. And so that's what's going to happen. Now, the question is how many poker rooms are you going to see? I think that with it being 
confined just to Nevada, you're not going to see that many. I would say probably less than a dozen. I would be interested to see what the big companies like MGM and Caesars do, you know, whether Caesars just consolidates with World Series of Poker, you know, Poker Room and what MGM does, how they brand theirs or whether they would do a bunch of little ones. Um, not – it's tough to do that because then you don't really have that critical mass of players. So I would say right. the fewer the better right now. Right. And as far as you know, some of the biggest names in online poker were indicted um, this past year. You know, how, how are, are these are those guys out of the running when it comes to operating in Nevada, or how does the how is the state going to look upon those when they're under federal indictment? Yeah, they're not. They're not. They're not. You know, those guys are totally out of it, and I don't know any player who would want to give them their money right now with the problems <laughs> with the full tilt and them not being able to find the money. And there's specifically stuff in the regulations that you can see. Yeah, they wrote this because of full tilt. Basically, they have to have the cash or credit or bond, and the credit has to be a solid letter of credit that, like, yes, the money's here waiting for you to pick it up. They have to have that on hand for every dollar, every cent in money that, that they accept and deposit. So there always has to be that money right away. So if there's, you know, run in the bank like it's a wonderful life or something, <laughs> they don't have to go digging into their vacation money, you know, the Arctic Char fund or whatever. <laughs> they can just, uh, they can just, uh, you know, dip into that. So there's definitely a lot of safeguards built in there. It's it's pretty interesting stuff, and it's kind of fascinating being a historian. You know, watching this stuff unfold right in front of me. It's it's pretty neat. So are what? The, the, go ahead, Chuck. Are, are the banks going to touch this? That's yeah. Question. You know, basically, you have to open an account, which you can do either online or in person. And basically, you will – there's no credit gaming. They're absolutely forbidden from allowing credit to people to gamble online. So I would guess there has to be some kind of bank instrument. This would not violate the Unlawful Game Internet Gaming Enforcement Act, Ouija, because it's not unlawful internet gaming if it's legal right. and it's taking yeah. place in the state. And I would guess it would be much the same way that they're funding the mobile betting right now where you open an account and you share your credit card information or bank information or write them a check and that's how you fund it. You know, um, I'm sure that's how that will happen. So we saw Cantor who has – you talked about this in, in, in some of your – postings you know they they have sort of turned the sports book as a widget thing into a business and and it sounds like they want to do the same thing for poker and it's interesting that they're going for an ipo as well trying to raise some capital um it, they, it seems like they are possibly well positioned to do that kind of thing and of course companies like bally and igt um who have had some you know some uh internet software experience in the past the mostly experiments due to regulation and and uh, legality but uh obviously something that they've kept an eye on so i guess what happens next what happens next is people apply for their licenses which they've already started doing and they start doing the investigation and figuring out you know does their stuff work and they license them and i'm going to backtrack for a second on the canner you know yeah they're really moving into this, this aggressively and i think it's also important to say that both they and igt and possibly bally although not certain for sure, have experience offering online gaming in Britain. You know, if you go to IGT.com in the UK, you can download an app where you can play the games, you know, slot machines on your phone for money. There you go. So that's, so yeah, I mean, they've got the experience, but it's not in the US and it's just rolling into that. And there's all kinds of other interesting questions about what this, you know, what this would do to the terrestrial poker. And, you know, basically I think there's enough people who would not want to have to go down there to play that 
they'd be able to do it. One question I'm not sure of from the regulations is whether you're allowed to play in more than one room at the same time. I right. believe you are. It only says that you can't you can't have more than one seat at the same table. Uh huh. And since it doesn't say other tables, right. I think you are allowed. So if you're if you're you know a professional poker player and you know you can grind out a certain amount of money per hour at right. one table, you definitely would be doing that and play a bunch, right? Sure. Well, yeah. I mean, I can see why they don't want you playing it more than once at the same table for yeah. cheating reasons. Yeah. Um, you know, it's re- this is really interesting, and I I agree. I, this this seemed like such a huge deal to me that we're seeing this change. I mean, I would have you know this is it seems to be picking up more steam. Then I would have I would have guessed. It seems like it's really on. Um, it's really moving forward now, and and uh, it it got some coverage, but uh, but not as much as I would have expected. It seems like a pretty big deal to me. Um, you know, I don't know, Chuck. What do you think? If if you could do internet poker California legally, would you be sitting in front of the computer playing all day? You know, I used to back in the poker craze thing. I used to play on Poker Room, which is I think out of the Netherlands or something. It was the only one that worked on a Mac, <laughs> and. Uh, yeah, I played for a while, you know, I won a bunch of money and then I got sloppy and lost it, you know, and uh, I kind of stopped playing it. I just lost interest in it. So, but that being said, if anybody from MGM is listening, I have the perfect name for your online poker site. Flush. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, of course, you've trademarked and copy, copywritten that, Absolutely. Right? It's copyrighted, copyrighted, copyrighted. trademarks, yes. Um, you know, how long until we see, like, the equivalent of the Nazarians of the world creating their own, like, sub-licensed poker rooms with, like, dancing girls in the background or something? Where you can you know, yeah, I mean, maybe he they will. A, he doesn't have a gaming license. No, he doesn't yeah. now, but who knows? It's pretty strict, too, and there's a lot. I mean, they're, they're one thing... You know, it's important to know about the Gaming Control Board and Gaming Commission is they're awesome people, but they don't have a sense of humor about a lot of stuff. <laughs> so, and they're going to really take this seriously. And I think there, there's going to be they're, – they're going to be in a very short leash. And they yeah. make very clear like if you screw this up, we will revoke your license. It's well, that's good. Like, I mean, I, you know. This up, we will revoke your license. Yeah. And you have no – there's no appeal. Right. Well, I, I – you know, I don't – Regulators shouldn't uh, have too much of a sense of humor. It's their job to make sure that this stuff is all on the up and up. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Big story. We'll definitely be talking about this as it unravels and um, or ravels or continues on. <laughs> Hopefully, it doesn't unravel as it so unrolls. I guess is what I meant to say. Um, so I think that's it for today. Um, we we usually do a sure bet segment where we kind of recommend stuff. I didn't warn you guys. I don't know if you have anything. I do have one thing I wanted to recommend uh, that I will definitely share. And if you guys have anything you want to throw in, feel free. Um, but what, one thing that uh, is a two-part interview that Dave did with uh, Paul Steelman, architect, great stuff. Um, great. The second part just came up. And it's if you're a casino nerd, it is you know it is like um, you know a dream come true. If you like some of the interviews we've done in the past with people like um, Roger Thomas or uh, Deretter Butler, it's right at uh, right up that alley. I mean, it's a lot of sort of hardcore um, casino nerdery, and uh, I highly recommend listening to both parts of that interview. Uh, it's it's just really good stuff. So if you haven't heard it already. I would definitely recommend checking that out. 
Uh, and unless you guys have anything else, I think we're done for the day. I got something. Oh, I go got, ahead. I got a couple things. Okay. First of all, I want to continue my F you from last time. F you, Dave Zizzle. This Dave Wherever Zizzle. you are, you're still getting F you'd. Good. Um, and uh, let's see. My, I've got two sure bets. It was announced last night. Van Halen is going on tour in 2012. I saw them two years ago with David Lee Roth, and it was fracking amazing. And they're going to put out a new album, so it's like 1984 all over again, and it's going to be great. So sure bet number one is Van Halen next year is going to be awesome, and I'm going to be there, and I hope you're there too. And the other one is – now this is stupid – um, uh, <laughs> it's actually a three-parter. Three good apps that I that I like for the iPad. Okay. Uh, n- number one is the Domino's Pizza app. I ordered a pizza from my bed, <laughs> <laughs> and the guy came and knocked right on the door. All I had to do was walk six feet to get a pizza, and I used the app to pick all my toppings, and it showed up at my house within 15 minutes. It was amazing. So the Domino's Pizza app is pretty kick-ass. The second one is if you have the DirecTV, they just launched a new app that kicks ass too. You can use it as your, like a remote control. You can stream stuff. You can watch TV in the other room you know, while somebody else is watching the actual TV. You know, It's pretty freaking cool. And the other one, the last, is a, another app called House. How do you spell H- that? H-O-U-Z-Z. Oh, okay. House. It's, it's kind of like uh, interior design porn. Um, so it just, it's, they have like 300,000 photos of interiors designed by people or architects or professionals and amateurs. And, uh, they're set, they're set apart by category. So let's say you have a house and you want to figure out what to do with a, a, a bathroom. You know, you can just kind of do this thing in and you say bathroom and, well, where do you live? Do you live in the northeast? Because, you know, different designs work for different places, right? Northeast, southwest, kind of your region. And then it'll show you a whole bunch of things and, like, all sorts of really groovy ideas of how to decorate and design, like, interior spaces. So if you, you know, really get off on interior design photos, as I do, um, you know, this thing is is hours of, of jizztastic fun. <laughs> then that's my nine sure bets. Nice. Week. Nine, nine, nine. Yes. <laughs> um, totally dig it. Awesome. Wrong pizza company. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Um, I actually, I saw that Van Halen tour in Vegas also a couple years ago. It was great. Totally recommended. Um, lots of fun. Uh, Dave, I'm springing this on you. Do you got anything to share? Yeah, I mean, the only thing I can really think about is telling people to go back and read some of the stuff that Jeff wrote and just kind of appreciate his legacy. You know, that's... Uh, Kind of the, what, I, what I'll recommend. You'll definitely get something out of it. Good. I agree. Yes. Um, we'll link link all this stuff up when the show goes up. Um, that's it for today. Uh, thanks, you guys, for being here. Let me go around again, and you can tell people where they can find you. Dr. Dave Schwartz, where can people find you? Uh, TwoWayHard3 and DGSchwartz.com and Gaming.UNLV.edu and many other places. And uh, Mr. Chuck Monster, how about you? You can find me at lasvegasadvisor.net. <laughs> excellent, excellent, excellent. Um, you can find me at ratevegas.com. Thanks, guys. Have a good week. 